of the joys of the Christian life is to sing. I don't sound too good when I sing, but I know the Lord um, loves to hear from us when we praise Him, and we've done that, and we'll continue to do that today as we continue to work our way through the Gospel of John. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're working our way verse by verse through this Gospel, and we're in John 6. We're in John 6, as you know, and John 6 is a remarkable chapter. As you walk into John 6, you're confronted with some of the most remarkable truths anywhere in the Bible. You see the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation. You see the enormity of God's love in the sending of His beloved Son. You see the satisfaction that is found in that beloved Son, the Lord Jesus, as we make sure that our affections are being directed in the right place to the right person. And then we begin to see some interesting things as we journey through. You know, when we look at John 6, as I said, we we see these remarkable truths. And then, when we look a little closer, we begin to notice that there's a couple of things that occur. And I made mention of this a few Sundays ago. Things begin to ramp up in this chapter. You think about it, it begins with the feeding of the tens of thousands of people. Then there's this bunch of people who flock to Jesus. They even cross the Sea of Galilee. And they come, and Jesus just says to them, you're only coming to see me because you want your tummy to be full. And then Jesus speaks about how he is the bread of life. And then things begin to ramp up even more because the religious Jews from the synagogue there, they begin to grumble amongst themselves. Jesus then says there, in, op- in, in response to their grumbling, something that we would find counter- counterintuitive. He says, well, you're grumbling amongst yourselves, but I want to let you know that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And then after that, things ramp up a little bit more because the Jews then begin to move from grumbling among themselves to arguing among themselves. Jesus then talks about what we looked at last time. He begins to use those allegorical words that aren't to be taken literally, that you are to eat His flesh and drink His blood, which we saw are synonymous with believing in Him. And then after that, we see that Things ramp up even more because John chapter 6 then introduces the theme of betrayal. And then after betrayal, the devil then is mentioned. And so things go from an earthly plane, at least from one perspective, things get more and more intense, more and more dire. And one commentator, Andreas Kostenberger, said that this chapter ends with utter failure. Utter failure. I want you to park all that in your mind and I'll hope to loop back to that as we conclude. But let's pick up reading in verse 57 of John 6. And we'll read through to the end of the chapter. This morning we will consider verses 60 to 66. And then Lord willing we'll finish John chapter 6 next week. By looking at the remainder of verse, through to verse 71. John 6 verse 57. Jesus says, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread, pointing to himself, which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then? if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before. 
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and acknowledge that you are the one true and living God and that we we are not. Lord, we are those who have come to know you, to know that you are true, that you sent your son and that in him I found words of eternal life. Thank you for choosing us. We needed your effectual love upon us. Warm our hearts and sanctify our souls and draw lost souls this day to yourself, we pray. Amen. Well, it's been well said of various confessions and creeds and catechisms that they quiet our mind and our soul when we are prone to making too much noise with our mouth. I like that description of the catechisms and the creeds, historic documents throughout the church and for Nine Sundays now, we have read a portion of the Heidelberg Catechism. And as we consider what I said at the beginning about John 6, that it kind of ramps up. It contains the most glory-revealing truths anywhere in the New Testament. And yet, the underbelly of it as well is some very dark and sad tones like betrayal of the Lord Jesus and the devil and opposition and abandonment. Because we'll see here in John 6 that by the end of John 6, from an earthly perspective, it is considered another failure because our Lord Jesus is abandoned by the crowds. He's abandoned by one of His own. And all that's left is 11 men. And so we need comfort. When we can be overcome by opposition and betrayal and the influence of the devil. We need some kind of comfort. But what I hope to explain at the very end is that we have all the comfort we need as the floods of opposition and the floods of the devil. Betrayal even. Whatever it may be. When things are difficult from an earthly perspective from our vantage point that all we can see, we must ask ourselves the question of the Heidelberg Catechism from 1563 that says, what is your only comfort in life and all that life contains and death? Well, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. 
He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. I had no idea how fitting that question and that answer from the Heidelberg Catechism is to John 6. It's incredibly fitting. It's been said of our passage this morning, John 6, verse 60 to 66, that what we have on display is a divided opinion and a divine initiative. We have a crowd of people. And inside that crowd are the Jewish leaders from the synagogue that we read about in verse 59. And then then there are what John writes and refers to as his disciples. Look at verse 60. It says, many of his disciples. Then verse 61, look there, it says, his disciples. And then again in verse 66, it says, as a result, many of his disciples. I made mention in our last time together in John that the word disciple is used in Scripture in two ways. And that really reflects the differing types of people here that are explained by that term, his disciples. Disciple at the most fundamental level and the the most basic level simply means a person who attaches themselves to a particular group or, or a person, like a student or whatever. We need to understand that here in John 6, we have the Jewish religious leaders who are not disciples, they are hostiles. And then we have two groups of disciples, those who are following Jesus around, They've observed all that he's done. They've followed him over by the lake, the sea, and asked him for food. And then you have the twelve. The twelve men chosen, as Jesus said, according to verse 70. And so among the general crowd, there are disciples and then there are disciples. It's been well said. I forget who said it and how they said it exactly, but it stays in my mind. I'm trying to pull it out. All people who follow Jesus are disciples. But only those who are truly saved are disciples. Or something like that. And so there's disciples and then there are disciples. Judas himself is actually spoken of in John chapter 12 verse 4 as One of his disciples. These disciples, they are mere followers. In our passage this morning, they're following out of intrigue. They're following out of interest. And then there are the true, converted, chosen, genuine disciples. They are believers. They are Christians. And they've all heard, all of them. All of the disciples, regardless of their authenticity or lack of authenticity, they have all just heard the bread of life discourse, which began really in verse 26. Jesus says, There truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. This bread of life discourse runs from verse 26 all the way through to verse 58. And it's now in our passage this morning, verses 60 to 66, and then Lord willing, next Sunday, verse 67 to 71, we begin to see the response to Jesus' words in that bread of life discourse. Why I've said all I've said about John 6 is that's the forest And then in many ways, as we've gone through John 6, each of the points of outline serve as like a tree, if you will. And so we don't want to lose the forest for the trees. We need the forest to understand what I've explained here in the introduction. And we also need the trees to be able to plumb down deep. And so I think 
I couldn't think of what to call these five points, so let's just call them five trees. We have the, the forest that is John 6, and then we're going to have five trees, and they all begin with R. Fancy that. If you're taking notes, the first tree, if you will, I can feel my homiletics professors warming up to slap me <laughs> for calling them trees, but hey, if you're taking notes, I want you to see first a representation in verses 60 to 62, as well as verse 64, a representation. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? What I mean by representation is that this response by this group here, these disciples, serves as an illustration of mankind, in a way, in response to the gospel message, the truths of Jesus. You see, one of the marks of our Lord's earthly ministry was that during the first part of it, countless people flocked to Him. And as time went on, that crowd thinned significantly, and all that were left were the Sanhedrin, who were the religious and political elite, some 70 members, who would relentlessly, we know, scheme against Jesus, try to take his life. And then a band of people who claimed to be his disciples, and, and here they are in our passage, some true, some false. Both, as I said, heard the bread of life discourse and all the depths of that that we've considered over some eight or nine weeks. And in response to that, some start to take offense. They start to take offense at the message of Jesus. And that's what humanity does to the message of Jesus. Humanity as a whole either receives or rejects the message of Jesus. What is it that these disciples, as they're called, what is it that they considered to be a difficult statement? Because they're saying among themselves, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Well, what is it? Well, it contains various parts. The first one would be the incarnation. The incarnation. Jesus here in this Bread of Life discourse says on more than one occasion that He is the true bread that has come down from out of heaven. He has taken on a human nature. The eternal Son, who only ever existed as the eternal Son, takes on a human nature. The true bread of heaven comes down, sent from heaven as God's Son, on whom, Jesus says in verse 27, on whom the Father has set His seal. Then in verse 32, Jesus says that He is the one, He says, My Father gives the true bread out of heaven. So the eternal Son sent by the Father, that's the incarnation. Well, another aspect of what they're finding difficult is the giving of His life for the world. You've got to remember the Jewish view of the Messiah was that He would be a conquering King. He would overcome all things political. He would never hang upon a cross and die. He would never come from Nazareth. He'd never be a carpenter. The giving of his life. Look at verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is the only Savior the world has. There is no other Savior of the world. He is the only Savior of the world. And so He gives spiritual life to all those whom the Father gave Him. That John's Gospel so clearly explains to us. Look at verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Verse 50. This is the bread, talking of Himself, which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, 
he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Look at verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. Another reason that they found difficult to accept is the teaching here from Jesus of the utter inability of man to save themselves. You remember, they, these people are bound up in a religion of works. We live amongst an ocean of people who are just engaged in a religion of works. I trust as you engage in your evangelism and you talk to people from other faiths, they all say the same thing. They're precious people created in the image of God. We must love them and witness to them. They just have different flavors and tastes and dresses, dress sense and practices, but everything is the same. Christianity alone is a, is a salvation of divine works, Jesus' works, not ours. And so the utter inability to save themselves. Jesus spoke about this in verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Can, he said. Not may. You know this. May is a term of permission. Can is a term of ability. No one can come. No one has the ability to come unless the Father draws that person. And that leads to another difficult aspect that they were struggling with. The sovereignty of God in salvation, which I just mentioned. And then the, the last component really to what they're struggling with is the idea that you must partake of Jesus individually and personally. Your religion doesn't save you. Your ethnicity doesn't save you. Your family members don't save you. You must come, enter through that narrow gate and partake individually and personally of Jesus. You must eat His flesh and drink His blood. That is, you must believe in Him and receive Him. It was those truths, and it still is those truths, that become difficult both to the so-called disciples here in our passage and to mankind today and perhaps some people here this morning. People come and they attach themselves loosely to Jesus. They attach themselves loosely to the church. And when these truths that I just mentioned, that Jesus unfolds in the bread of life discourse, when they come and they eventually make a demand upon a person, it's right then that they either receive or reject Jesus. What's very interesting is the word difficult in verse 60. Look there in your Bibles. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. If you've got an ESV, they'll say hard. Hard. Hard or difficult. It's the word scleros. The interesting word. It doesn't speak of something that's hard to understand. They're not saying that this is difficult to understand. I think we've often looked at this on the very heels of eat my flesh and drink my blood, which is kind of difficult to understand, but th this is not what this is talking about. The difficult statement is encompassing the whole bread of life discourse, and the word does not convey the idea of something that is hard to understand. The word means something that is rough. It means rough, like sandpaper or harsh. They are not unable to grasp what is being said here. The word there conveys the idea that they are unwilling to accept what is said here. There's a difference. Now, no doubt some of what Jesus is saying to them is full of wonder and mystery. That's for sure. But that was not what made it difficult. What made it difficult was the willingness to receive what Jesus said. 
And that really is the heart of all of this. And all the people that you've known over the years, and I know you've known people over the years, who attach themselves to Christianity or Christ, and then they just walk away, eventually. Well, if they walk away for good, it's not because they don't understand the incarnation and the virgin birth and Christ dying upon the cross and the resurrection and the exclusivity of Jesus. They ultimately walk away because they are not willing to embrace Jesus as the true Savior sent from heaven, the only Savior the world has, the only one who can satisfy their soul's restlessness. They're fine to be attached to Jesus when all is well and there's benefits of Him like a full tummy and the healing of sickness and the like. But when the truth of Jesus and the call to abandon self and confess sin and the need for a Savior comes, then they go. In verse 61... Jesus then displays a further proof of his deity, that he is God, by seeing inside the very heart of these folk. Look at verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Stumble. Earlier on in verse 41, we see another grumbling. The Jews were grumbling about him. That's from the hostile Jewish leaders. But here comes a grumbling from those who have attached themselves to Jesus. Following Him. And Jesus asks them a question. Does this cause you to stumble? Jesus obviously has supernatural knowledge. As God, He sees the heart. You cannot fool Him. He sees the heart. The word stumble there is the Greek word that conveys the idea of both taking offense, and ceasing to believe. And if you think about it, it's a very fitting word. Jesus knowing their heart and their unwillingness to accept, not understand, their unwillingness to accept who He was and what He was sent to do, He says to them, are you offended at this? Does this cause you to no longer believe? Are you going to cease now? And then in verse 63, he then adds to all of that a fascinating phrase. Look at there. Oh, 62 rather, I meant to say. After saying to them, are you going to kind of cease now? Is this offensive to you? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? That's a fascinating little phrase. And we can take it two ways. We can take it, number one, that Jesus is saying to them, what about if I just took everything away and went back to where I came from? What about if I didn't give my life for the people the Father gave me? What about if I just wound it all back and didn't come down as God in the flesh To save lost sinners. Who would you then have to go to for the forgiveness of your sins and peace with God? That's one way that we can take this. What about if I never just came? What about if I just wound it all back? That's one way to understand this phrase. It has some validity too. I mean, think about that and look over at verse 68 for a moment. Look what Peter says in verse 68. Peter says, to whom shall we go? If you just wind it all up and you're gone, whom shall we go? Another way we can think of this, and I think this is what is meant here, is Jesus saying to them, look, if you think all that is hard to swallow, and if that offends you and causes you to cease following me and cease believing, Wait until you see me die on a cross and rise again 
and spend 40 days appearing to over 500 people and then fly up in the sky, ascending back to the Father in their presence. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. The first view makes sense. James Montgomery Boyce held that view. It's quite intriguing. But I think that's what he's saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 tells us that Christ crucified and risen and ascended is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. It's really interesting to see here how Jesus handles unbelief in his midst. That's what's really interesting. We would begin to kind of pander, fold, capitulate, not want to say anything offensive. Verse 64, Jesus tells them that this crowd is made up of those who just flat out don't believe. So this is a representation of human nature. Happy to attach themselves to Jesus, but unwilling to humbly receive Jesus. And Jesus doesn't pander to that. He actually just ramps it up. We might be called unloving if we did this. But he ramps it up and he does so under our second heading or our second tree. Number two, we've seen a representation. Now we see a regeneration. A regeneration. Look in verse 63. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Here is... In this verse, the reason why Jesus' teaching causes offense and is viewed as a scandal. The flesh profits nothing. That, that very idea of the flesh profiting nothing is connected to the very idea that the flesh cannot receive the truth of the gospel. The flesh, that is the natural, unredeemed, body of death cannot give life. It, it profits nothing. Jesus says it's the Spirit that profits. It's the Spirit that gives life. You know, in the Old Testament, we see that the role of the Holy Spirit was to give life. You think back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters ready to act as the agent to give life. Ezekiel 37, in the valley of dry bones, verse 1, the hand of Yahweh was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of Yahweh and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, there were very dry and he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord Yahweh, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Lord Yahweh to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. That's in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, John chapter 3, we studied the new birth and how one must be born again, born by the Spirit, given new life. Jesus said in John 3 to Nicodemus there, the flesh only gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit births the Spirit. Unless a person is given new life by the Spirit, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says to these disciples before Him, the reason that you are offended and the reason that you will not accept that which you understand, let that sink in for a moment, the reason that you will not accept that which you understand is because you have not received the life-giving Spirit of God. If you are unwilling to accept His incarnation and virgin birth, 
that Jesus became a man and dwelt among us, if you are unwilling to acknowledge that He came to give His own life as a ransom for sinners, and if you are unwilling to acknowledge that you are completely unable to save yourself, but need a Savior because of your sin, then it is evident that you have not received the life that the Holy Spirit of God gives. You see, Christ and Christianity is not about becoming a better you. All of Jesus' teachings, all of the teaching of the Word of God, the very Gospel itself teaches the need for a work of the Spirit prior to accepting and receiving divine truth. This is why regeneration precedes faith. This is why regeneration precedes faith. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You must have your sinful desires subdued and your affections altered before you would ever look to Jesus and receive His words as spirit and life. Spiritual life that rests fully upon Christ for all righteousness. Spiritual life that rests fully upon Christ for salvation comes when the Holy Spirit grants new life. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ by His Spirit who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That life comes, according to verse 13 of the first chapter of John, not from the will of man, not from the will of the flesh, but of God, the Spirit. Look at how Jesus ends verse 63. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Sometimes I think, we think, we can be given to thinking, particularly in light of 2 Corinthians 4.6, which says that the God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our heart to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we can think that, that, that those that are spiritually dead, God just turns the lights on and they believe. And that's true. But we can forget a key component. That yes, regeneration precedes faith, but God has ordained a very special instrument that sparks regeneration. The Word of God. Think of an arrowhead. An arrowhead that is fired out. And that arrowhead is what God has ordained as the means by which regeneration is sparked to life. Regeneration doesn't happen in a vacuum. James chapter 1 verse 18 says, In the exercise of His will, that is, His will to save all those that He, the Father, gave to the Son... It says, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth, birthed us to life by the word of truth. By the word of truth. And so, Jesus is here saying to them, the words that I have said unto you are spirit and are life. If you will move from understanding them and rejecting them to understanding them and receiving them, the arrowhead of God's grace through His Word will bring a spark to your heart that will awaken your soul and you will then be renewed and given life. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired, meaning breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We know that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 17, that your Word is truth. Sanctify them in your truth. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, For no such prophecy was ever brought forth by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave words of 
spirit and life. The apostles gave words of spirit and life. Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, verse 21, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And do it. I just flew into the third tree. We're already there. It's called a revelation if you're taking notes. A revelation in the second part of verse 63. This is Jesus. He reveals God. He reveals divine truth by His words. And then, in verse 65, because we've looked at verse 64, in verse 65, we could call this a reinforcement. A reinforcement. Fourth heading. And He was saying, for this reason I've said to you, that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted Him from the Father. Christians for the longest time have shied away from the grand doctrines of grace and thought somehow that we can offer up trinkets to draw people to Jesus and then those of us who have even embraced these grand doctrines of grace have just kind of hidden them in our coat. When all you ever see from Jesus is Jesus just boldly proclaims to people who are lost, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And you're like, well, how? hang on, how, how, how? His means is to bring the sinner very, very low. Part of the reason these people said that's a difficult statement. Remember what it was? Jesus taught through here the utter inability of man to save themselves. And all prideful man wants is for me to be able to, to, to contribute to my own salvation. And so in our evangelism, just obliterate the people, not them, we love them, but obliterate that which is inside of them, a heart that is resistant and seeking to save themselves and tell them the Christian faith says that no one can come to God unless God first does a work in them. But, 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 but. but let me tell you something. God has ordained that the message will bring forth life. So could you listen to the message for a moment? Jesus just reinforces it. He doesn't back down. And then for the sake of time, we see a response in verse 66. It's a very sad response. As a result of this, many of His disciples withdrew and were not walking with Him anymore. This is the group who were superficially attached to Jesus. Who were then pressed, do you believe this? You've come for comfort. You've come for food. You've come for what it means to experience the blessing of Christ and Christianity and the Gospel. But now it's decision time. And they walk away. And they walk away. I think here in verse 66 is when the Apostle John had in his first epistle. They went out from us. Because they were not of us. The reason they were not of us. Is because they hadn't experienced. New birth. They hadn't experienced regeneration. The very life of God in the very soul of a person. John says there in that first epistle, because if they were of us, if they were regenerate, they would have stayed with us, but because they weren't regenerate, they walked away. That's a response. So a representation, a regeneration, a revelation, a reinforcement, and a response. Hearkening back to what I said at the beginning. When we walk through this beautiful chapter. When we see the opposition to our Lord and we experience the opposition in our own life. 
when we see betrayal and we, we experience betrayal in our, in our own life, when we see the, the devil dancing around in our own life as we see here in John 6, when we see difficulties come, it can cause us to wonder what's going on. But the grand theme of John 6 is that while it can look like opposition and the devil and difficulty will overcome us, in Christ it never will. In Christ it never, ever will. Do you know how we ensure that it never, ever will? Is at the end of verse 63. We lay hold of those words that are spirit and are life. We've been given life in his name, we believe. John chapter 11 verse 40 says that when we've believed, we see the glory of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. We believe under salvation. We have Christ for pardon. We receive Christ for power. We have Christ in us. Christ for us, for forgiveness, and Christ in us, for life in His name. When we face these difficulties of life, we just need to keep drawing down, listening to the words of Jesus that are spirit and life. Because you know there's something very fascinating about verse 63. When Jesus says, the words that I have spoken, look it says there, to you. To you. Yes, John 6 is a grand unfolding of the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation. But by those words there, Jesus is also laying down human responsibility. He is saying that the words I have spoken to you, if you lay hold of them, they are life. They are the Spirit indwelling you. They are that which sparks a new life in Christ's name. And what I think of that is this. How we lay hold of life when we experience what our Lord is experiencing here. And do not underestimate what our Lord is experiencing here. He is experiencing abandonment. He is experiencing betrayal. He lays hold of what we must lay hold of. He goes to His Father. We go to the Son whom the Father sent. And we lay hold of the words of our God. As that which helps us to sail through those waters. There's one little final implication here. When Jesus said, I've spoken to you those words. I want to say to anyone here. Because... There is someone here who is just simply attached to Jesus and the church in some artificial way. And if you were pressed, and you will be pressed, to say, is this true of Jesus or not? If you don't hear those words that Jesus said unto you that are spirit and life, that if you lay hold of them, they can ensure the indwelling of the Spirit and grant you newness of life and eternal life. If you don't lay hold of the truth of the bread of life discourse, then you will walk away eventually. And you will face the full wrath of God for doing so. Because it's not us that you reject. It's Jesus whom you reject. The final thing I want to say is the fact that Jesus says there in verse 63 that He has spoken unto them words means that you and I better speak unto them words as well. I mean, this is what the Christian life is about. In the midst of increasing grumbling and arguing and opposition and betrayal and the devil, we speak words of life as we draw down from the one who gave us life. 
This is the Christian life. This is John 6. We've got one more Sunday in it. Lord willing, next Sunday, let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for this opportunity. Lord, I pray for anyone here who who is of those who will walk away. Help them to grasp the enormity of their need of the Savior who gladly gives His words and gladly gives His Spirit without measure because He Himself has the Spirit, received the Spirit without measure. There's a fountain of living water awaiting them. Lord, they understand these truths. They're just rough to their unredeemed flesh. Make them alive so they would long for these truths. These truths that point to a person whom can truly satisfy their soul. I know the precious saints here are thinking about family members, extended family members who are who are without Christ, who have understood these things, who sound a lot like those in verse 66. Father, would you comfort them by your grace? Help them to trust that mercy is still available on this side of the grave. Help them even to be wise and discerning again, to once again revisit the words of spirit and life that they can give. I pray, Father, we pray, that those words would be the arrowhead that sparks regeneration in the hearts of those lost loved ones. Father, for, for we who have received the new birth, we say thank you. We're no more intellectually capable than anyone on our street or in this community to, to think about these things, but we have just received abundant grace. Father, you have drawn us to yourself and united us to your beloved Son and indwelt us with the Holy Spirit. We have every reason to rejoice. And so, Father, would you accomplish something great here today? Would there be a soul who identifies that, yeah, I'm a little like that and I don't want to be like that anymore. I want to come to Christ. Would they hear the truth about Jesus? Would they receive the atoning sacrifice of Jesus that He died on the cross for sin? Father, bring them to life and help us who have life to continue to draw down from Your grace the words of eternal life. Your Word is truth. and Sanctify us by Your Word, we pray. And all God's people said,